that we can open up your word and we can trust that it's reliable and sufficient for us today as we think about our lives and as we look at the world. I pray that uh, as we go through this passage, you'd help us to understand uh, what is happening in the book of Second Kings. And I pray for the ability by your Holy Spirit to connect it to our lives here in 2023. And we need your grace and wisdom to do that. I thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15. Today we're going to cover two chapters, 15 and 16. I remember um, years ago, I would uh, my family would go down to the Tampa area in Clearwater for a few summers when I was a teenager. And uh, I remember uh, when I was old enough to drive, I remember there was one time where I drove back. Uh, it was the longest I had driven at that point. I was probably 18 years old, and I was driving about 13 hours from Clearwater back to Chattanooga. If that was what I remember the distance being, I may be wrong on that. But going up 75 all the way. And, and I remember driving that, and it was my first experience at, like, crazy drivers. And not to say that I wasn't a crazy driver, but there were people that uh, upped me in that category. And I remember driving and seeing cars go by every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, about 105, 110 miles an hour, just flying. And occasionally on those trips, you would see, you would see them pass you and you're thinking, oh boy, they better watch out. Because they better watch out for state troopers and they better watch out for fatalities. They better watch out for a disaster. And so often you would uh, go about another 10 miles and see a state trooper and there would be that car. It'd be sitting on the side of the road. And you would also hear about tragedies of cars that had flipped and cars that had caused other wrecks down the road. They had their foot on the gas and they were speeding at a high rate of speed towards disaster. And when we look at this passage today, I've entitled this section, Moving Towards Captivity which for Israel is in essence moving towards disaster, towards the fulfillment of what God said would take place. If you go all the way back to the end of Deuteronomy and you see the blessings and the cursings of the law and you see that promise, this is what's going to happen if you forsake my law. This is what's going to happen. This is where you're going to go. This is where you're going to end up. This is what's going to be fulfilled. So we look at this section, and today, as we look at moving towards captivity, four different observations. The first observation, as we look at chapter 15, is we see a pattern continued, a pattern continued. And what I mean by that is, if you've been with us for a while, and you've looked at these storylines, you've seen many kings in, the, in Israel, all kings in Israel, following the same disaster. In Judah, there are times where you see ebbs and flows where there's a little bit of good. You, you see righteous kings. We're going to see some examples of that even today. But in Israel, you see this disaster continuously looming. A pattern continued. What we're going to do is we see seven kings as we look at chapter 15, we see bookends of the first king mentioned in chapter 15 is one from Judah. The last king in chapter 15 is from Judah. The five in between are from Israel. So here is where, depending on your um, diligence and your desire to understand the chronology, 
You have to, there's seven kings mentioned here, and many of them have short snippets. And as all of these sections are, have been consistent, the corresponding section, the parallel account, the harmony of this chapter is going to be found in Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles, so often, just like when you're reading the Gospels, you find more information maybe in one gospel than the other. You see the same kind of thing happening in Second Kings, First Kings with the Chronicles. But the first one that's mentioned here is going to be a man named Uzziah. His, his, he's also known as Azariah. There's a lot of these nicknames and other names they go by that can be confusing. You've got Azariah. Before we jump into Azariah, I want to give you a snapshot of the kingdoms of the day. There's a map I want to show you. And the map will show, and you can't see much here, but on the bottom left, you're looking over there at the far bottom. You're looking at Egypt and in the, in the bottom to the right of Egypt. You're looking at Edom, but you're seeing the Mediterranean coast right there. And, and all the way to the top of the Mediterranean coast, not to the top of the map, but the color there is the area of Damascus. Below that is Israel. The further you go right, you're looking at kingdoms like Babylon and you're looking at kingdoms like Assyria. Now, this is significant because as we begin this section, here's what you have to understand what's happening. You've got five kings of Israel. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, verse 29 of chapter 15 clues us in that we are going to see the first captivity of the, the kingdom of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. We start around, there's debate. People debate anywhere between 790 and 770 BC at the start of chapter 15. By the time we come to King Pekah of Israel, at the end of chapter 15, around verse 29, Assyria has now gone into Israel, and we read of the captivity of those people. And now the time in, in chapter 15, verse 29, is 732 B.C. Now, you may be thinking, what's the significance here? Well, the significance is, is that this is literally going to take away the northern kingdom. And by the time we get into chapter 17, verse 7, we read of what takes place in 722 B.C. when Assyria takes Samaria and ultimately puts its stranglehold on the kingdom of Israel. It's important to look at that because we have to see this is where this is going. A pattern that involves some good, a lot of bad, but speeding like crazy, foot on the gas, towards playing around with the consequences of defying the law of God. That's where we're at in chapter 15. Let's look at it at a glimpse. We can't really go through every detail of this chapter, but to give you an idea, I want you to see the kings that are here. We've got seven kings. We count Ahaz number eight in chapter 16, but there's eight kings here listed. Azariah of Judah. Zechariah of Israel, Shalom of Israel, Menahem of Israel, Pekahiah of Israel, Pekah of Israel, Jotham of Judah, Ahaz of Judah. That's a lot of kings. But I want you, what I want you to see is by the time you get to the bottom of that list, Ahaz and under his time, 
you're dealing with all of these disastrous consequences coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And by the time you get to the bottom of that list, when we get into chapter 16, the northern brother of Israel has affected the southern kingdom of Judah at the core. And what we're going to find at the very bottom of that list, Ahaz is going to be acting almost identical to the first king of the northern kingdom. Who was he? Jeroboam. Jeroboam the first. The man who brought Baal worship into the north. The man who erected false temple places of worship at Dan and Bethel. Now, can you believe it? Now the king of Judah is going to be acting just like Jeroboam. It's, it's moving towards disaster. It's moving towards captivity. Ultimately, what takes place in 722 with Israel is going to follow with Judah 160 years later, 140 years later. So this is where we're at. Let's go through it. Azariah is the first one in chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. And I'm going to just give you snapshots here. Here we're looking at a man named Uzziah. He reigned 51 years. That's phenomenal. If you think about the time here, and this is a king of Judah, Uzziah. And Uzziah had things that he did that were remarkable. He was known for his great building projects. He was known for his military strength. He expanded the kingdom. So many things went well. But isn't it interesting that even when we see some good that takes place in the lives of the kings of Judah, we always see some bad. We see some bad with him, especially in the account of 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, we read a parallel account of what takes place in his reign. And look at verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26, 16, it says this. But when he was strong, he grew proud. Interesting. A man that had so many things that were good, but he became proud. He was unfaithful to the Lord as God. And here's what happens in a summary. I'm not going to read all the verses of 16 through 21 of 2 Chronicles 26. This guy got such a big head that he thought that it was wise and prudent for him to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And if you're reading only, and you got your Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 1 through 7, what do you read about his life? He came down with leprosy. Why? Because he played around with that which was holy. And God gave him leprosy. So that's a little summary of the life of the 51-year reign of Uzziah. We also then go into five kings of Israel. And the first one he mentions is Zechariah in verse 8 through 12 of chapter 15. And what do we know about this guy? He only reigned for a few months, six months. And what's fascinating about his reign is, do you remember the promise in 2 Kings chapter 15? The promise to Jehu? Really, the only reason that the kingdom lasted as long as it did. And what did we learn about Jehu? This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. And that's part of the line of Jehu, Zechariah. 
And we see this. Ze- Zechariah's reign, his, his, his kingdom, was fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Jehu. And he said, you're going to have four sons that sit on the throne of Israel. And God was faithful to his word. And really, when we look at the life of Zechariah, we read about it in verses 8 down through verse 12. It says in verse 9, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. And so what takes place in verse 10, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down, put him to death. Well, let's look at him. Shalom in chapter 15, verse 13 through 15. He reigned for one month. What a long reign he had. 30 days. And what takes place? He is reigning, and we read about it in 13 through 15, in verse 14, then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tiz- Terza and came to Samaria. And it's really sad. And he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And very, very brutal in verse 16 to read about the life of Shalom. At that time, Menahem sacked Tipsha and all who were in it, its territory from Terza on because he did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it. He ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. The depravity of man is rampant, is evident in the life of the people of Israel. And when people forsake the ways of God and they depart from his word, they are open to all types of perversion and evil. I tell you, don't be surprised about the world that you live in when it acts worldly, because when a culture forsakes the ways of God, they will always run to perversion. The perversion we are witnessing in our day is a snapshot of the culture's rejection of that which is authoritative in the word of God. Do do you see that? It's fascinating because a lot of people, they look at the world and rather than seeking to understand it through what the Bible reveals, they look at it very pragmatically. They look at it very culturally. They look at it very progressively, but they don't think like a Christian. They don't see the world and the explanations the Bible gives for the conduct of mankind. But I want you to see, these are the people of God. A king in Israel is acting with this type of violence and this type of atrocity, and it's evident within the nation. Then we go into Menahem, verse 16 through 22. Menahem, he was wicked. He um, worked. We, Menahem is the one we read about in verse 16. Shalom was killed. So Menahem is what we just read in verse 16. His life is described in verse 16 down to verse 22. And we see this atrocity. We see his violence. We see his wickedness. He does what was evil. Um, he, it's fascinating because you see all of these alliances that take place in chapter 15 and 16 and Menahem, and you read about his in verse 19 and 20. He exacted the money from Israel, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. This is a sad reality, sad day in the life of Israel. Then we get into a man named Pekahiah, verse 23 through 26. 
In Pekahiah's life, we read about his evil in verse 24. And he did, he reigned two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Verse 25, he was conspired against. Um, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, his captain, conspired against him, struck him down in Samaria. And that leads us to the reign of Pekah. And it was under the reign of Pekah that I mentioned verse 29, where we see the first onslaught of Assyria taking people out of Israel into captivity into their land. All of these things, all of this heartache that are taking place in the life of Israel. And then we have the bookend at the end of the chapter. We go to Jotham of Judah. And all we're trying to see is a pattern continued in chapter 15. Seven kings, two from Judah, five from Israel, Things are operating in a way that we've seen consistent throughout the book. But there's a ray of hope at the end of chapter 15. Jotham. Jotham was a good king. And we read about his life in verse 32 through verse 38. He was 25 when he reigned, when he started. 16 years was the length of his kingdom. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, it says in verse 34 of chapter 15, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. You read about his uh, life in 2 Chronicles 27. And it's interesting because there's a verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 27 that is encouraging. It says in verse 6 of chapter 27 of Second Chronicles. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before his, the Lord his God. It's fascinating because that's a good segue to think about some things. We see a pattern that continues, a pattern continued, but we also see an exhortation rejected. And you may be thinking, what are you talking about? An exhortation rejected. What is the explanation as to why the nation is on the brink of captivity when we get into the end of chapter 15 and we see in 732 these people taken captive to Assyria. What's the explanation? It goes back to 1 Kings chapter 2. And do you remember the words that David gave his son? David gave a warning to Solomon. And, And think about it. You go back into the life and the history of Israel. King David, heroic. King David loved And you think about the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, David's words you would hope and pray would be something that would be cherished by all the kings. It's fascinating because the one that we just read about, Jotham, he he seemed to follow that in his heart in most of his days. But when we read about 1 Kings chapter 2, let's look at it real quick. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon and his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And here's what he says. Be strong. Show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. It's fascinating being a parent. I remember uh, 
I remember the, I mean, I, I remember being single and thinking I would see a family and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't imagine. I, I do not want to be at that place in my life right now. And I'd see families and it's, it's hilarious how things go full circle. And now I can't imagine anything more joyful than being a dad. It's like what I thought I loved and what I knew at 18, I had no idea of what life was going to take place before me. And now, like, there's these times, and, and like many of you have already experienced this. Some of you are going to experience it later on. Some of you have grandkids you do this with. Every once in a while, you get these moments, and, and, and you get these moments with your kids where you may be in a car, you may be somewhere else, and it may only last three minutes, it may last 10 minutes where you feel like you can try as hard as you can to steer them and to give them a trajectory, where you seek to like encourage them, exhort them, and, look, and, and basically plead with them, look, I, I want to show you the way. I want to show you the way of real life. I want you to understand that so many people fall prey to this deception. Please don't go that way. If you think about it, that's the heart of a father that's what a heart of a father should be that, that desires to follow God. And, and that's what you see with David. And David is a man who's broken at the end of his life. He's a man who's gone through great sin and great struggle. And he's pleading with Solomon. He's saying, man, if you're going to be what you long to be, if you're going to be what's truly successful in the eyes of God, you follow hard after God with all your heart. You keep his word. But what do we see? We see a pattern continued and an exhortation rejected. Nope. We've got better ways. We've got more wisdom. We don't need the things of God. This morning, it's, it's fascinating. These things are written for our instruction. Are we going to be like the kings of Israel who were complete knuckleheads that were disobedient and proud and arrogant, despising the ways and the word of God? Are we going to bow our heart and our life before God in the way in which we live? That's the question. We see this and. And now it sets up really a, a tragic, tragic spiral. We, we see a pattern continued, an exhortation rejected, a downward spiral illustrated. And here we are, Ahaz. Ahaz, if he was going to emulate anybody, he emulates probably one of the worst kings there ever was, King Jeroboam. And what does he do? Uh, Israel's facing the judgment of God. You get into verse 37 and 38 of chapter 15. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, Rezin, the king of Syria to the north, Pekah, the son of Ramalia against Judah. Pekah just took out his predecessor, right? Pekah is going to be the king that finds himself in ambush to the Assyrians. But what happens is Rezin makes an alliance with Pekah, the king of Israel, and they come against Judah, okay? So you got Rezin, Pekah, and down here you've got Ahaz. Ahaz is scrambling. Everything's collapsing in on him. 
And what does he do? It's fascinating and sad and tragic. We read in verse 1, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. Who was his dad? Jotham. What was Jotham known for? Following the ways of God. You know, Jotham wasn't a perfect man, of course. But, but Jotham, when we look at his life, it does speak of things that he didn't do. He didn't remove the high places, but there's a lot of marks of, 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 of submission to God. There's a care for the house of God. There's a care for the city of God. He, he, he's seeking to follow the Lord. Jotham was his father. He rejected his father. He rejected it completely. And, and what he does next is so sad. What takes place in verse 3, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel in chapter 16. He even burned his son as an offering. What is that all about? That's, remember, the pagans worship Molech. He, he followed the pagan practice of offering his son according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then in verse four, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now this is fascinating. I was confused when I read that. I was like, well, that's interesting. Why, why every green tree? You remember back in 1 Kings 14, 23, it says, For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. What does this mean? He, it appears he's following the fertility gods. I mean, think about it. It's crazy. Remember when Elijah went up to Mount Carmel and he's basically like, all right, Let's have a showdown. <laughs> call out to your gods. I'll call out to the God of Israel. And think about how, how weak the pagan gods were in the way they're even described. In order for them to see their worshipers, they had to be on the highest hills. Be on the highest hills. And then they had to do all of this horrible cult prostitution, all of this bizarre, sexualized, perverted ritual in order for the fertility gods, so they said, to honor their wishes and all of this stuff. And, and here he is. It's, it, here he, he's getting so pragmatic. He's looking around, all around him, and he's thinking, okay, where can I get help? Where can I get help? Everything's closing in on me. Maybe if I offer my son to Molech, maybe if I go to the high places. You see, Ahaz is different than a lot of the kings we've read about. A lot of the other kings, it doesn't speak of their direct practice of worshiping on the high places. It says they did not remove the high places. What do we learn about Ahaz? He participated. He participated. He is a pagan king. We read and um, as we keep going here, it, it, it's so sad. You read in, in 2 Chronicles, and don't have time to get into all of the parallel account, in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 2, and then from 5 down to verse 9, it's a sad, sad story of, of, of they could not conquer Judah, 
but resin and Pekah come down against Ahaz and they wreck havoc. 120,000 people killed, 200,000 people taken away. And then a prophet in 2 Chronicles 28 comes and he tells the people of Israel, look, this is God's judgment on them. You better not go the way you're going and and do this act of revenge on your brothers and your relatives. And they let them go and they send them back to Judah. And all of this is going on. So you've got this man and his kingdom is feeling like it's crumbling. And what does he do? You see him in the very beginning of chapter 16. He's willing to try every pagan practice to get answers he wants. He's willing to sacrifice his son. He's willing to do high place sacrifices. He's willing to do it any way and every way in order to get the result desired. But what takes place now? When we read the story of 2 Chronicles 28 and all the way down into verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way down to verse 19, 20, 21. Verse 16 is revealing in 2 Chronicles 28. At that time, this is after all those events took place where Rezin and Pekah were wrecking havoc upon the people of Judah. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Wow, what is this all about? Well, that's seen right here in the text of 2 Kings 16, verse 5 through 9. Look at it with me. They came to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz. And that's what's described in the 2 Chronicles account. But they could not conquer him. They couldn't finish the deal. Even with all the devastation, they could not ultimately conquer And then it says, at that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath, for Syria drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. And here it is. So Ahaz, 2 Kings 16, verse 7, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up. And rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And what takes place? It says on down two verses, and the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. Rezin's no longer on the scene. But here it gets worse. It gets absolutely worse. So now Ahaz has reached out to Assyria. And he's reached out to Tiglath-Pileazar. He should have been concerned about the name, right? Tiglath-Pileazar. And, and he, he, he comes now and meets him in Damascus. Now, Assyria is way to the northeast of Damascus. But what happened? The Assyrian kingdom, way up there in the northeast, north of Babylon, came all the way down to Damascus to defeat it. Why? Because Tiglath-Pileazar agreed to bail him out. He comes all the way down to Damascus. He kills Rezin. And what takes place? Ahaz is like, I'm going up there. He goes to Damascus to the north. And what takes place when he gets there? King Ahaz, verse 10, went to Damascus to meet Tiglath. He saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. What? 
he goes to Damascus and it appears he sees an Assyrian altar. Pragmaticism, what's pragmaticism? Whatever works, go with it, baby. What doesn't matter, go with it. He sees it, it's working. Assyria conquered Damascus. There's the altar. I'm enamored with the altar. He gets in touch with the high priest in Jerusalem and says, hey, we need to change the temple in Jerusalem to make it look like the altar I'm looking at in Damascus. And they move the furniture. They move the order that God had given for the temple to make it look more like the altar in Damascus. The high priest had no backbone. The high priest wasn't like some we've read about in 1 Kings that stood up to the people that were evil. He was a yes man, and he does whatever he needs to do to accommodate the wishes of Ahaz, and it's terrible. And what does he do? When the king came from Damascus, verse 12, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar, went up on it, burned his burnt offering, his grain offering, poured his drink offering, threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. Wow. He commands you, Uriah, in verse 15, on the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering. It's terrible. You, you, the priest follows his wishes. Verse 16. What does he do in verse 17? And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. And he took down the sea from off the bronze oven oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Israel. I want us to ask some questions real quick as we look at 2 Kings 16. Here's some questions to think about. Number one, are you being conformed to the world in your thinking? What happened to bring him to this place? Remember Romans says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What does it mean to be conformed? It's the idea of like your mind being shaped and pressed into the pattern of the world. So all of a sudden, you are a professing Christian. You're active in the church, but you become enamored with the world and your mindset and your lifestyle is starting to look more and more like the world than the things of God. You are falling prey to the love of the world. It's interesting because that's what he does. He did that. You know, we read about it in the first few verses and, and it says there, it says in verse three of second Kings 16, he even burned his son as an offering. Why? According to the despicable practices of the nations. Why? He was so much more in tune to the world's way of doing things that he was conformed to their practices and not the things of God. So the first question, are you being conformed to the world? The second question, where do you run to when you're in trouble? 
What do you run to when you're in trouble? Think about it with me. When a crisis hits, it's revealing. A lot of times we either run to God or in reality, we run away from God. What did he do? He didn't run to God. He ran away from God. He ran away from God. It, it, do you realize that we learn of a snapshot of this passage? Mike read what you might have been thinking, a Christmas passage, which it is a Christmas passage, Isaiah 7, 14. But do you realize Isaiah 7 is in the context of the story of 2 Kings 16? Did you know that? Turn back to Isaiah 7 with me. You see, what happens in 2 Kings 16 is that he runs to man-made saviors rather than trusting in God. He runs away. Remember Romans 1 says we either worship the creator or we worship the creation? Where do we find hope? Do we find hope in the things of the world or do we find hope in the things of God? Do we run to the world and the world's answers for the answers to our problems, or do we run to the Lord? In second, or in Isaiah chapter 7, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, verse 1, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramiah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The question we need to pray about is where do we run when our hearts shake as the trees of the forest? Could you, could you, if I, if I went around the room today and I said, all right, give me a time in your life when your heart shook. Can you, can you, could you come up with something? I wouldn't trust you if you couldn't. Right? We've all had our lives shook. We've all had trouble, whether it's on a small scale or a great scale. But where do we run when it's shaken? And what takes place? Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what happened in the backstory. God revealed himself through Isaiah. But what did he do? Did he trust in the word of God? Or did he let his fear bring him to the place where he sought human answers? He didn't listen to God. I was listening to somebody and they said, do you think Isaiah slept well? Absolutely. Isaiah slept like a baby. Isaiah knew that they were surrounded. Isaiah, a prophet to Judah, he knew that the nation was in trouble, but Isaiah's trust was in the word of God. But what about Ahaz? Did he trust the word of God? No. He did what? He went to man-made saviors. 
He reached out to Assyria. He reached out to Tiglath. What takes place here? We, we, we could keep reading in Isaiah 7, but, but go back to the text. The thing that I want you to think about here is, are you being conformed to the world? Who do you run to when you face trouble? Another question, are you looking to the world? Are you giving to the world what is only God's to hold? Are you giving to the world what is only God's to hold? You say, what are you talking about? Well, what did he do here? What did he do? It says in verse 8, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. What was that silver and gold for? It was for the things of God, for the service of the temple. It was for God-appointed means. And what does he do? He takes the silver and gold that were there to be to God, and he gave to the world what was only God's to hold. I tell you, if you keep tracing that idea, the question becomes, where are you placing your trust? Where does your trust need to be? My trust needs to be in God. Am I giving my trust to the world? Am I trusting the world rather than trusting in God? God's worthy of my worship. He's the only one worthy of my trust. Am I giving to the world my hope? When only God is the one who's divine to take my hope and to secure it? Am I giving my allegiance to the world versus my allegiance to God? Am I giving my dependence to the world, my dependence to people, my dependence to earthly things? You could go on and on and on. We look at all of this and the last question, are you enamored more by the world than the things of God? Are you enamored more by the world than the things of God? He goes to Damascus and he sees man-made idolatry and rather than reject it and rather than just praise the living God of Israel that God had prescribed how he desired to be worshiped, he was a man who had been conformed. He was a man that ran to his gods in time of trouble. He was a man that placed that which was God's into the hands of the world. And he was a man that ultimately was more enamored and more in love with the things down here than the things of God. I, I tell you, you know, today, I think this is a way we can pray, isn't it? We can say, oh God, help me learn from Ahaz. Help me to see the foolishness of his choices. Help me to see the danger of his pattern and give thanks to God through our Lord Jesus Christ that he gives us a better way. The final point this morning and we're done. We see a pattern continued, an exhortation rejected, a downward spiral illustrated. And the last one, we see a ray of light prophesied. A ray of light prophesied. I don't know about you, but can you imagine being in the land of Judah during the days of the reign of King Ahaz? I tell you, we look at the wicked leadership we're under in the world today, in America. We look at all of the evil that takes place 
and all of the leadership's decisions above us? Can you imagine what it would like being in Judah, knowing your heritage, knowing what God had called them to be? And yet we see here in the midst of it, and I pray you'd see this, there's hope, but it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this got me so excited because I wasn't even planning on going this way. I was just sort of like wrapping it all up. And I was like, wait a minute, Isaiah, we read Isaiah 7, 1 through 8 or 9. But ultimately, what is the prophecy that is given to Ahaz? And there's debate here, and I'm not going to get into the debate. There's debate about whether this is a double fulfillment or a single fulfillment. All I know is this. The ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is this in 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you realize in one of the darkest periods of the nation's history, there's a promise and a glimpse of hope. There's a ray of light that that God is speaking to Ahaz. And even though Ahaz is too foolish and too disobedient to understand it, and even if the people didn't have any wisdom to process what ultimately this would look like, it shows us something here. We've said the whole time we've looked at Kings, we said the the, the theme of the series is, is, is God's faithfulness, Israel's rebellion, and the need for a greater king. And here it is. We need a king greater than all of these kings. And who will be that king? We read about him in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I pray you see yourself in the struggle here. As you look at the failure after failure of the people of Israel, misstep after misstep, I pray that you see yourself in need. And you go, wow, that's the challenge of the human heart. I have a propensity to go the the other way. But I pray you would see that the only hope we have is a greater king. The king that Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And please understand, he is our only hope. There is no man-made salvation experiments that work. It's only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did we learn the last two weeks? He is our sinless substitute who saves us. And we are saved and put in right standing with God the Father through Jesus because by grace through faith, when we depend in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to our account where now we stand in right standing with him through the good deeds and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our only hope.
and be encouraged that even though they didn't understand it fully, God was showing the people of Israel this very reality as they went through their darkest moments. Would you bow your head? I thank you, Lord, for your good word. I thank you that we have the opportunity to have a completed canon to see the old and how it relates to the new, to see the the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and death for us on the cross. I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us all these things. And, and because we're your people, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of your spirit to guide us into how to even understand this. We praise you for that. We thank you that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray today we would feel an assurance of pardon. By grace through faith, we've been saved. But I pray, oh God, that even as your children, we would learn from the foolishness of the nation. I pray today if there's people here that are flirting with disaster, who are looking for saviors of this world in the midst of trouble, who are finding themselves enamored with the world over your truth. I pray in all these applications, if any of those apply to our own hearts, that we would come before you in prayer. Thank you for hope. Thank you for Christ. I pray if anyone's here in this room today and they see themselves in the same plight, in the same position, needing a savior, just as Israel needed a redeemer, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray today they would understand the good gospel of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I pray all of our hope and trust would be upon you, that that would be the common theme of everyone in this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.